This morning's reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. I believe we've got a new light since the last time I was up here. Thank Thank you, Patrick, for leading us in such a meaningful way in observing the supper of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you at this time to open your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Daniel as we begin our lesson for the morning. King Nebuchadnezzar reigned over Babylon from 605 to 562 B.C., And he was by far the most significant Gentile king in all the Bible. He's mentioned 90 times by biblical writers. And he was the first Gentile ruler who significantly interrupted the history of the Jewish nation. On three different occasions, God referred to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. But he also called him the lowest of men, which simply means that even the acts of the lowest of men can be used in the service of God when he intends for it to be so. Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal, despotic king. All of his subjects trembled before him, but he trembled before no one, before nothing. Nothing, that is, except his dreams. Daniel 2 tells the story of God speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Although the king himself was unaware at the time that God was involved in in this. And he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar his plan for the establishment of his eternal kingdom and of the role of the Gentile nations, the role that they would play in that plan, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and going all the way through history to the time of the Roman Empire. However, Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, came in the form of a strange uh, vision, one that involved vivid symbolism that he couldn't understand, and it troubled him. It made him uneasy, and when the king was uneasy... Everyone was uneasy. 
The first 30 verses of Daniel 2 tell the story of the king's dream and of the entire drama related to the unfolding of that dream. And these events took place shortly after Daniel became a part of the king's court. In chapter 1 and verse 18 of Daniel, we learn that Daniel, along with others um, of royal seed and from some of the most distinguished families of Israel, had been carried captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar when he first captured Jerusalem. And in Babylon, he was given the, the name of Belteshazzar, and he was instructed in the language and knowledge of the Chaldeans with the view that he might become a member of the king's court. In verse 18, we read that after three years of schooling, he and his friends, along with others, were brought before the king. And in verse 19, we read that the king spake with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. The phrase, they stood before the king, denotes the, an elevated rank in the court. And now, I think it's important for us to get in mind at this time and not forget it, that when Daniel came to Babylon, he was still a lad. The estimates are that he was from 12 to 18 years of age, but probably more like 14. And so he was not yet 20 years of age when uh, the events that we are looking at this morning occurred. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. At the time that Nebuchadnezzar had this troubling dream, he really had no reason to have a nightmare. His, uh, his throne was secure. He had uh, conquered all of his uh, enemies. He had everything that life could offer, seemingly, but he could not sleep. How many people do you know who have trouble sleeping? I read somewhere that nine million people in America suffer from insomnia. The word troubled in this text is an interesting word. It means a deep disturbance, deep apprehension. It comes from a word which means to to strike, to beat, or to pound, like beating a hammer on an anvil. And so his was a disturbance that caused deep apprehension and anxiety. Nebuchadnezzar could uh, conquer dynasties, but he could not subdue his own dreams. The question often arises when you tell this story about Nebuchadnezzar, why God would give such a prominent dream conveying his plans for the future to someone like Nebuchadnezzar? The short answer to that question is because Nebuchadnezzar was the first ruler of what is referred to in the scriptures as the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21 and verse 24. Let me explain. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that most of it follows the history of Israel up to this point in time in Old Testament prophecy, when God brought about the captivity of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The great theme of Daniel's prophecy centered around the four world empires 
that would rule the world's history from the time of Jerusalem's destruction by Babylon up to the time of the establishment of God's kingdom during the days of the Roman Empire. And Daniel gives a prophetic view on this, of this period, an overview of this period, of this time of the Gentiles, as it were, that highlights those four empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream because he and Babylon were represented in the dream by the head of gold. They were the first nation in this succession of empires leading up to the establishment of God's kingdom, the church. So he has this troubling dream, and he's determined to do something about it. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And when they were assembled, he announced his problem. He said, I've had this dream, and my spirit is troubled to know what the dream means. I want to know what it's all about. And the writer tells us that those assembled gave this reply. They said, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The Bible says that they spoke to him in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language common to the people of that area. And it was also the language that Daniel had been studying for three years uh, in his training. It was also the language Daniel began uh, using in writing this prophecy at this point in the book and continued using it until the end of the seventh chapter when he reverts again back to Hebrew. Now, what that's all about, you'll have to ask Daniel Bailey because I don't understand it. But that's what the Bible has to say. The counselors responded to Nebuchadnezzar's request, and, it, and, and, and their response seems to have been normal. He said, they said, if you need an interpretation to your dream, tell us what the dream is, and we'll try to tell you what it means. But the, but the king refused to tell them what the dream was. They weren't sure of the king's motives. And I'm not sure we can be sure of what the king's motives were. Uh, He was just simply demanding that they tell him the dream and then following that, tell him the meaning of the dream. There's been a big discussion in the commentaries about, about this. Did Nebuchadnezzar really forget his dream? Or did he just say he had forgotten his dream because he wanted to find out if his counselors were real, were real if, they were, if they were honest, was he suspicious of them? Did he think they were a bunch of charlatans and that they were just living off of him? And every time he would tell them a dream, they would come up with some concoction and give him some fancy interpretation, and nobody would know whether what they said was true or not. Well, I don't know if that's what he was thinking. But he had them in a situation now where he was going to find out about them. So some people think that he was just testing them. Others believe that, like often happens, he just had a terrible dream that night and he woke up the next morning and he remembered that he had had a dream and that it was not good, but he couldn't remember the details to it. Perhaps that's happened to you. I've had dreams before. Wake up the next morning and I remembered that I had dreamed 
And sometimes I'm somewhat unsettled about what I dream, but not able. Recently, I spoke to my wife at the breakfast table about a dream that I had. But I found myself having difficulty remembering exactly what it was that I dreamed. So that's what some people think was happening here. Others think he was testing them, but the fact is, regardless of of, uh, of whether he was testing them or, or what the circumstances was, he was he wanted to know what the dream was and he wanted to know the interpretation of it. Well, the king was disappointed. That's that's putting it mildly, that they were not able to tell him what his dream was, let alone to tell him what it meant, and uh, so an interchange took place between the king and and his counselors. Notice verses 7 to 9. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times have changed. In other words, until maybe I've forgotten this or or it all just blows over. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. Well, once again, I can't help but wonder if perhaps um, he thought these men were imposters and that they didn't really have the ability to tell him his dream. But... And, and no doubt he had, he, had, he had thought that in the, in the past, if that was the case. But it had not affected him. His dreams had not affected him in the past as this one was affecting him. This one was, uh, had, was affecting perhaps his future. And so he really wanted to know what it was all about. And the, the, uh, the counselor said to him in verses 10 and 11, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Uh, there's, there's no other who can tell to the king, can tell it to the king except the gods in, uh, whose dwelling is not in flesh. And in a sense, that was true. There, there was no man who could, who could both tell him the dream that they had not heard and uh, give him the interpretation. But there was a man on earth who, could, uh, who, could, who knew God. And, uh, and with God's help, he knew that he could reveal uh, the dream. So the king makes a, cr- a decree in verse 13, verses 12 and 13. The decree to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed this in, in your reading of the Old Testament, especially in reading about Old Testament kings that are not Jews. But they don't have any problem going to the extreme. And that certainly is the case here with regard to Nebuchadnezzar. So he decides he's going to kill everybody involved and, imp- and implicated. The wise men, in, all the wise men in the whole city. All the king's wisdom people and all his counselors. He knew these counselors were just trying to buy time. He knew they didn't have the answer or the interpretation. And he was furious and they were going to bear the brunt of his fury. Turn now to uh, verses 13 to 26, and let's, let's look a little bit about Daniel and his role in this. Um, they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And that's what I call a problem. Um, 
They started killing off the counselors of the city of Babylon. And they were looking for Daniel and his friends because, remember, they were a part of this group. They stood before the king. And and even though apparently they were not a part of this failed attempt that we've been reading about to know and to interpret the king's dream, still they were members of his counseling team. And so they were under the decree as well. And Aryok, who was the king's executioner, went to find Daniel and his friends to prepare him for the execution. He arrives at Daniel's house in verses 14 and 15, and we begin to see the wisdom uh, of this young man. And again, remember that we're talking about one who's not yet 20 years of age. How many young people are there in this audience who are not 20 years of age? But here's what happened. With counsel and wisdom, verse 14, Daniel answered Aryok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, and he said, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Aryok then made the decision to tell Daniel uh, about what the king was doing. When Aryok came to, uh, to Daniel's house to carry out the king's decree, he was so taken with Daniel, with his maturity, with his uh, personality, with his wisdom, that he really decides to sit down and try to explain to him what had been going on. And Daniel wanted to know what was the urgency. We begin to see here something of the leadership ability uh, and the wisdom of this young man. He, He teaches us something about dealing with a crisis. First of all, you don't panic. And secondly, you de-escalate the situation. You don't make it worse. So Daniel was such a charismatic personality that when he began to talk with this head of the guard, he took him into his confidence. And this was a smart move on his part because only Aryok was able to get Daniel before the king. And when Daniel is brought before the king... We read about that beginning in verse 16. He said, give me a day and tomorrow at this time, I'll tell you the answer to your question. Nebuchadnezzar saw there was something different in Daniel from the other guys. And so he granted his request. Notice what Daniel does and what he does next in verses 17 and 18. Well, for one thing, he prays. Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah his companions, that they too might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel and his friends petitioned God to spare them from the king's decree. decree. The Babylonian wise men sought the answer in the stars. They were astrologers. Daniel and his friends sought mercies from the God of heaven. The best the astrologers could do was to go to the stars. But Daniel knew God who had made the stars. And he knew that God had all the treasures of knowledge that he would need to to resolve this problem with Nebuchadnezzar. So he went right past the stars to the God who made the stars. And when the answer came, the Bible says in verse 19 that the decision was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now the end of this story is recorded in verses 27 to 30 of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 
answers in the presence of the king, and he says this, The secret which the king demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Now, this was an incredible session that he had with the king. This young boy, not yet 20, stands before the king, one of the most powerful men in the world, and he's... uh, He does so with courage and with strength. He's careful to let the king know that he has the answer, but he's also humble enough to make known to the king that it really wasn't his answer. He wanted the king to know that the answer came from God. Can you imagine someone younger than 20 years of age uh, having the courage and boldness to stand before the most powerful man in the world while under the sentence of death? You know, you know the reputation of this king, Nebuchadnezzar. If he, if he doesn't like you, if the meeting doesn't go well for you, it's over for you. Daniel knew his God, though. And he walked into the presence of the king and he gave him the answer that he wanted, that he needed. As we close our lesson this morning, I want to give you a few thoughts to take away from this particular study. Thoughts that I hope will be of an encouragement to you. Number one, I want you to know that since God will be awake tonight, you can sleep. You understand that? In Psalms 121 and verse 4, the Bible says, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 127 in verse 2 says, It's vain for you to rise up early to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. How many of us think of sleep as a gift from God? So the first thing to remember is this. God's going to be awake tonight so you can sleep. The second thing I want you to remember is this. You may not know who, uh, what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. I know this is an old statement, considered trite, no doubt, but it's true. Almighty God knows what we cannot know. He knows what is in the darkness. He knows what is in the future. So you and I need to concentrate on our relationship with Him who knows it all. And don't get so paranoid about the things that we don't know. There's so much about what's going on in the world that we'll never know. But thank God, we can know the one who does know about it all. Daniel 2 and 22, God reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells in him. There's no past, no present, no future with God. He sees everything in the now. And he knows what's ahead for this nation. He knows what's ahead for this church. He knows what's ahead for this family. And he knows what's ahead for this individual. Third and last, 
Since the whole world is in God's hand, your world is in God's hands too. Isn't it interesting how we are always quick to trust God and praise Him in the aggregate? We sing, He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the whole wide world in His hands. And then what do we do? Then we go home and we can't go to sleep because we're worrying about our world. Wait a minute. If he's got the whole world in his hands, doesn't he have our world in his hands? Doesn't he have your world in his hands as well? And if he can speak this world into existence from nothing... And if he controls all that's going on in the governments of the world, and he's done this since the beginning of time, isn't it reasonable for those of us who claim to be Christians, who are recipients of so many exceeding precious promises, to believe that Almighty God controls our world as well? And so while... We're giving him praise for controlling the world, for having the whole world in his hands. Let's give him thanks also for the world that we live in, for our little world, for whatever it may be. And let us realize that if we are in the right relationship with him, everything is going to be all right, no matter what. So when you feel overwhelmed, pressed down with burdens that seemingly are too great to bear. Remember, you can leave those in God's hands if you are his child. He's going to be awake tonight, and he knows and controls the future, and he's got your world in his hands. We need to remember this. Here's a scripture to remember, Psalms 4 and verse 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you want peace? Not the peace that the world has to offer. You've probably had enough of that. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you want peace? Do you want this kind of relationship with Christ? It begins by accepting Christ, believing in Him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, repenting of your sins and having them washed away in baptism. In the words of the song, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you trusting fully in his grace this hour? And that's where the peace comes from. Are you trusting fully In his grace this hour, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Maybe you've already become his child, but you've wandered far away from home. Isn't it time for you this morning to come back home 
And we trust that you will, as together we stand and sing. Have you been to...